Well, greetings on this Memorial Day weekend, and certainly we are most grateful for those that suffered for us to be able to have the freedoms that we enjoy. And I was listening to our seniors and the ladies and the men standing up there, and you just thank the Lord for that generation of older people who love the Lord and who suffered a whole lot more than we do today, right? When it comes to freedoms that we're able to stand in today because of their sacrifice to the Lord and for uh, the country. But better yet, I think uh, we need to be reminded today that our allegiance needs to first be to our God. John was praying for me this morning, John Young, and I couldn't have said it any better. That was my thoughts entering this weekend, and he began to pray about what a blessing it is to have the freedoms that we enjoy in our country. <clears throat> but at the same time, the greatest blessing is to be forgiven by Christ, to stand in that freedom and have our sins forgiven. So today I want to remind you of our need to cry out, as the song says, to the Lord. Uh, and we're going to talk about a recipe for revival on Memorial Day and talk about what revival looks like. About a hundred years ago, let's really say probably around 119 years ago, just at the turn of the 20th century, there was an individual named Evan Roberts, and he lived in the country of Wales. He was 26 years of age, and he was in seminary, but he obtained the permission to leave seminary to go to his own home village and preach his first sermon. Seventeen people showed up to hear Evan Roberts preach his first sermon. He had four points. I know some of you are thinking, are you going to have four points today? Here were the points. Number one, confess any known sin to God and put away any wrong done to others. That was point one of his sermon. Point two, put away any doubtful habit. Point three, obey the Holy Spirit promptly. And number four, confess faith in Christ openly. No one could have ever imagined the nationwide impact that that one event has had, not just in Wales, but the whole entire world. Within three months after him preaching that sermon, 100,000 people in the country of Wales came to faith in Christ. Unbelievable. The same revival jumped over the ocean and spread to America. And, our, uh, and there was huge nationwide revival. And I want to remind you, there hasn't been that kind of nationwide revival since 1905. That's a long time uh, for countries to go into revival in other countries and other countries. And I think there's only one answer to the proliferation of evil that we see in our world today, folks. And that's called revival. We desperately should be crying out to our God. In my lifetime, I've certainly never seen the proliferation of evil that exists not just in the world, but also in the church at times. So I think there's a time for an outcry to heaven for the people of God who sense that things have just gotten totally out of control. And we sense that the forces of evil and destruction are way too large for us to be able to have the ability to contain them. Only our God can change things. So when evil and wickedness seem to grow like weeds on the landscape, God places within his people a desperation that we cry unto the Lord. We yearn for deliverance 
Let me show you a text of Scripture where God unfolds for us what that might look like. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Can you find that? That's in your Old Testament. No, we've been in the New a lot. But we're in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 7. It's very important that when you deal with the text, most of you, if you've been around church life, you know 2 Chronicles 7.14. But do you know the context of it? It's easy just to throw that out there without understanding what it comes, where it comes from and why the chronicler, chronicler gave that to us <coughs> from the Lord. <coughs> Here's what the Bible says. 2 Chronicles 7, beginning in verse 11. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer, and I've chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no, is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people. Conditionary clause. If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will hear their land. Now, my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. Now I think our nation needs revival. If we use that terminology of a national revival, much like we've seen in the past with Israel and other places. But what shall we say about the church? Does the church need revival? I think the consistent lack of obedience among believers to the will of God is the underlying problem of why we're not experiencing revival in our churches. It's the issue of obeying the Lord. It's sad when the list of sins that mark our society, which would have caused our predecessors to cringe, might I remind you, but that list becomes the very list of sins that are frequent in the church of the living God. You can't hardly tell the difference between the sins that are in the society and the sins that are in the church. If that be the case, folks, we need revival. We do. We need revival. Revival is needed when believers fall into the vices and scandalous sins like incest and abortion. Thank God for a few mayors across the land who are stepping up, and governors, should I say, who are stepping up across the land and, and highlighting for us what the Bible says about babies being made in the image of God. Thank God for that. How about divorce and homosexuality and pornography and cheating and stealing, etc.? Revival is needed when worldliness so captures our hearts that we are entrapped by our insatiable desires for every kind of entertainment. We need revival when that happens. When any form of leisure or entertainment competes for the believer's time and loyalties that would equal or exceed our time and joy with spiritual things, we need revival. I saw a quote by John Piper this week that David and I were lifting weights and Nabla shot it to me and I was like, ooh, should I even say that? Because, you know, the finger kind of points back and forth. But the gist of it, I didn't bring it to the pulpit with me, but the gist of that quote was 
how there's a gulf of difference between whether we decide to play sports on Sunday in reference to those who are across the world trying to decide if they're going to worship on Sunday because they may be killed. And here we are in the U.S. trying to decide if we're going to take the Lord's Day to play another sport. Does that hurt? It ought to. It ought to hurt every one of us in this building when we're contemplating how people across the world die every day for Jesus. We think we're sacrificing in the U.S. because we may or may not play ball on Sunday. We need to wake up, folks. We need to wake up. And we wonder why the church never has revival. We wonder why there's never any brokenness over sin. It's because any time we cross that line between leisure and entertainment, taking the place of our joy and commitment to Christ, then you've headed headlong into idolatry. I know it's quiet in here, but it's true. It's true in my life. It's true in your life. When we cross that line, then you've gone headlong into idolatry. So what is it that we need? We need revival in the church. When the spirit of controversies arise in a church over minor issues, and even when controversy is had when there are major issues in the church, but we don't handle them in a Christ-like manner. Such is true of the Southern Baptist Convention. It needs revival. It does need revival because controversies escalate and we're missing the main thing. Well, number one, we're not letting the Word of God speak for itself. We like our traditions and how we do things. But the presence of a divisive spirit in the church, when there's jealousies and dissensions and backbiting and whisperings and fellow believers that fall out over whatever issue that may be, whatever color the shingles are on the roof or the carpet here. I mean, you'd be surprised what happens in church life. I've actually heard of churches who couldn't decide on what color carpet, so they would, half of them sit on one side with one color carpet, and they put other carpet on the other side. It's unbelievable the things that people get been out of shape about, right? You know, something is wrong with church attendance. It's half of church membership. If that's true, let's be honest. You know, this transparency, correct? Confession's good for the soul. Then we need revival. We do. You know something's wrong when the rate of divorce among professing born-again believers is virtually indistinguishable from divorce that is in the world. When the church and its worship services spend more time, spends more time lauding itself for our love for God instead of confessing our sin to God, we need revival. We love, 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 at times, worship more than we do God. We love the, how we do it or what we do, but you're missing the point that all of worship is to make known how worthy our God is. That's the goal of everything that we do. We're in desperate need of revival. Evangelicalism and the church have allowed themselves to be squeezed into the world's mold, and when that's the case, we need revival. By the way, what is revival? We talk about it, don't we? We sing about it. Revive us, O Lord. Revive us. What kind of circumstances does the Bible remind us of that can generate such a revival? Don't you long for it? Now, let's be honest. Some of you are saying, I'm not sure I want that. And it's good to confess that. I'm glad that you're willing to be willing to say that I don't really need revival. And then you need to turn right around and say, God, since I'm not willing, would you make me willing? Would you help me? Why? Because that's dependence upon the Lord. It's kind of like, Lord, I believe now. Help my unbelief. See, if you're saved today, this is your greatest need today. 
It, it is to be revived. It is to be reformed into what God would have you, conformed into what God would have you to be. Now, what we've just read for you highlights what, what the writer believes is the most significant achievement in the entire reign of Solomon. Does anybody know what that was? It was the construction of the temple. That was seen at, from the chronicler to be the height of all of Solomon's glory and or deeds. He had a 40-year reign. And what you're looking into is the festivities surrounding the accomplishment of the building for a house of the Lord. You remember David wanted to build it, but God said, you're not going to build it, but your son will. And Solomon builds the temple. And after all the dedicatory festivities are over, Solomon sends all the people home and they're joyful and they're happy in their hearts of the goodness that God has bestowed, really in the name of David, we would say, that Solomon is able to build the temple. And after the dedication, the Lord appears to Solomon. He wants to reassure him that his dedicatory prayer that's listed before this chapter was actually heard by the Lord. Which brings up the point. God can decide what he hears. And the Lord is reminding Solomon that I've heard your prayer. And so 2 Chronicles 7, 12 through 22 is cast as a divine speech. The bulk of which is taken up with a personal word to Solomon. But when you get to verses 13 and 14, it turns from a personal word to Solomon to a, uh, a word to the nation. And we might say to us, it's launched before us as an address to the entire nation. So Solomon's request that the God of eternity would forgive the nation's sin whenever he was forced to bring some stuff. And notice what these things are. Drought, famine, and pestilence. Where do y'all know that that came from? That is directly from the book of Deuteronomy. And what those are, they're covenant curses when the people don't obey God. God says, when you don't obey, I'm going to send these things to you. And when you obey me, I'm going to bless you. That's interesting, isn't it? So we, we start thinking about our own country. We start thinking about these things. And surely we can't enumerate them, how, how be it. There are things that God sends into our country to correct us. It may not be a drought and pestilence, but it could be. It could be a tornado. It could be a hurricane. God can use whatever he wants to as an instrument. We know that from Job 30, 37. But his request, God, would you forgive our nation? And here's the Lord's response in the text. And what I want to do is deal with this by giving you a, a, some three preliminary questions. That's one great way to unpack a passage is to ask questions. So we're going to ask, who is it that needs revival? Is that a safe question? And then we're going to ask the question, when revival happens, or, or under what circumstances will revival occur? Is that a good question? Who needs revival? Under what circumstances will it occur? And finally, what will be the results? What can we expect our God to do if we're actually in the mode of having revival? Y'all ready? Are you shell-shocked already this morning? Well, it's Memorial Day. Wake up, right? I didn't get home till 3 o'clock Saturday morning after bringing my mother-in-law here. You bring your ma-in-law here and you get here at 3 o'clock, that's not a good combination, right? <laughs> and she's not feeling well. Her back is down a little bit. My daughter's here, Elena, and she came back with us, and we got both babies here, and guess what? One of them's sick. All right? But I'm still up here ready to preach, amen? I'm a little... If I say things that are a little off this morning, it's probably because the preacher hadn't gotten enough sleep. All right. Who needs revival? The Bible says 
Notice this, 714, if my people who are called by my name, who needs revival? If my people who are called by my name, the passage says this, the phrase my people speaks of ownership. The Moabites belong to a false god called Shemosh, but the Israelites belong to the eternal God, the only one that exists, Yahweh. God. The second phrase, called by my name, also connotes ownership. So they were called by the name of Yahweh. What this means is like a jar would be stamped with the seal of its owner bearing the imprint of his name, such the Israelites belonged to the Lord. They bore his name. So from that preliminary observation, I think it's safe to conclude that when we speak of revival, we're talking about what happens among the people of God. You do know that the lost world can't have revival. They don't need revival, they need rebirth. They need regeneration. You can't resuscitate something that is dead. You have to make it alive. And only the gospel of Jesus Christ can save sinners. But here we're reminded that it's the people of God who claim to be the people of God, who know God, that need revival. But why? Why should the Lord's people need revival? Well, obviously... Some who claim the name of the Lord uh, really don't need revival because you're in that mode of obeying the voice of the Lord and the Word of God as a constant refrain of your life. In other words, your whole life looks like revival. You ever been around Christians like that? Yeah, I think we have. We probably have. So when we ask that question, it's highly possible that they're, they're walking in that mode of revival. And who needs it? It's the people of God who need that revival. Some people are walking as a child of God. They're obeying the Lord. They're not, letting, they're not being conformed to the image of this world. But they're being transformed by the renewing of their mind. They're walking with God. But verse 11 describes people who stand under judgment. That's why Solomon is asking God to forgive. Because the Israelites are standing in the form or in the way of judgment. And he describes it as drought and locust and pestilence. Again, all three of these are mentioned in Solomon's prayer that's found back in 2 Chronicles 6, 26. And again, these are cataloged in Deuteronomy 28. On your, when you've got time, read that. You'll see the blessings and the curses that are enumerated in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Did you know, folks, this passage teaches us clearly that God is not obligated to bless a wayward people. Why would Solomon... After, the, uh, after an incredible mo monument, uh, incredible time, he now has to go back. Even when this temple is dedicated and all the hoopla and all the glory of that day. And, but Solomon understands something. He understands that you can build all those things all day long and not be in contact and in fellowship and relationship with the king. So he's asking the Lord to hear his prayer. God hears his prayer. And then he's asking the Lord to forgive their sins. So those who claim the privilege of wearing the name of the Lord, but reject the call to holiness and obedience, are the very ones who need revival. And you're looking at one who needs revival. And so do you. Because we're all guilty of not obeying. We're all guilty of not walking in holiness before the Lord. Is that not true? Are you all awake? Memorial Day hasn't even taken place yet, all right? Yes, we all are in need of that. Have you ever read the book of Malachi? 
In the, Malachi, in the book of Malachi, the people are saying, What have we done against you, Lord? And the Lord begins to say, All right, I'm going to tell you what you've done against me. You treated my name as nothing. You've profaned my name. Uh, you sit on your wallets. The list goes on of things that he says. But the whole point of the book of Malachi is some things are just not acceptable before the Lord. Right? Some things are not acceptable. And when God says you should do these things, then we are, our heart bent should be for obedience. I want to say that the problem in our churches today, I don't, think, I don't think it's a zeal for missions that is lacking. I don't think it's a zeal for programs. I don't think it's a zeal for ministries that we do in the church. I think the number one thing lacking is our zeal for God. If my people who are called by my name, that, that should put the focus on what is most important. My people who are called by my name. In other words, the fact that He is your God and you are His people and we're His people, the goal should be to know Him. So I think the biggest problem in church life today is we just don't have a zeal for God. We have a zeal for a lot of things surrounding it in church life. And it's easy to hit the routine, push the, push the button and just go through the routine. That's what Malachi is about. They're giving sacrifices. They're doing all these things. But God said, I'm refusing them because your heart is not bent toward obedience. Don Carson wrote a book back in 1992. You know, time just flies. I got married in 1991. So this June, Natalie and I would have been married 28 years. And he wrote this book 27 years ago. It's fascinating. It's called A Call for Spiritual Reformation. You should look it up and buy it by Don Carson. It was reprinted in 2000 because of the need of the book, A Call for Spiritual Reformation by Don Carson. And he begins by posing this question. Again, we're still thinking about my people called by my name who needs revival. What is the most urgent need in the church in the Western world? If I have to explain that to you, that means where we live, right? What is our most urgent need? And he begins to trace through in that book the various responses that you might give to that question. What is need? What's going on in the church? And after discussing several possible answers, here's what he says. Clearly all these things are important. I would not want anything I have said to be taken as disparagement of evangelism or worship or diminishing of the importance of purity and integrity or carelessness about a discipline Bible study. Now we would think about that. That could be the answer to what problems we have. The impurity we're seeing in churches. I mean, just in our surrounding area, think of pastors who have left the ministry. We, we think about integrity issues. We think about lack of evangelistic fervor. We think about sin that creeps into the churches and difficulties and divisions. And he says, I'm not disparaging the fact that some of those things are true. And I'm not saying that that couldn't be the problem. He said, but there is a sense in which these urgent needs are merely symptomatic to a far, serious, a far more serious lack. The one thing we most urgently need is deeper knowledge of God. And I believe that. We need to know God better, don't we? When it comes to knowing God, we are a culture of the spiritually stunted. So much religion that is out there today is addressed and packaged to felt needs, right? And these are almost uniformly anchored in our pursuit of our own happiness and our own fulfillment. God simply becomes the great being who, potentially at least, meets our needs and fulfills our aspirations.
We think rather little of what he's like, what he expects of us, and what he seeks in us. We're not captured much in 2019 by the holiness of God and his love. His thoughts and words capture too little of our imagination, too little of our discourse, and too few of our priorities. In the biblical understanding of things, folks, it all goes back to the fact that we need a deeper knowledge of God. I'm telling you, we'll have massive improvements across the board in all those things if we seek to know the God that we belong to. Get that? My people who are called by my name, if we will seek to know that God that you call on, that you say you know, then everything else in church life and even in our nation will begin to improve if the people of God would seek to know God better. Massive improvements in purity, evangelistic effectiveness, better study of scriptures, improved private and corporate worship, all these things will take place. We need to be careful that we're running toward our God that we belong to and not the blessings that He gives. Amen? We should be running to Him. Consider, ladies and gentlemen, what has been done for you. For God to save you from your sin. To turn away the wrath of God from your life. Consider what was done for you. We need to realize again the holiness and greatness of the very one who sits upon the throne. The same God that sat on the throne when Solomon's temple was made. is the same God that sits on the throne today. Did you know everything here is temporal? Everything here is going to turn to dust and rocks. And I'm not a prophet and I'm not a son of a prophet. But I know who our God is by merely watching our lives. That not be true? Uh, there's a book written about this, but I said it for years and years. We claim to know the Lord, but when we get out into the world on Monday through Saturday, we actually live like practical atheists. Because nothing that we profess actually comes out in life. You know, what's in the bottom of the well will come out in the bucket. Right? I mean, you say, well, I love the Lord. I belong to Him. My people who are called by my name. Just let something go wrong in the house and let's see what happens. There's no patience, which is a fruit of the Spirit. There's no love. There's no joy. There's no gentleness. There's no forbearance. And we say we belong to the Lord. Do you see where this is headed? If we really belong to Him, my people who are called by my name, you can't live like a practical atheist and say you belong to this God, the only God that exists. You can't be saved and it not make a difference in your life. It's going to make a difference if you belong to Jesus. In our world today, when the Jesus thing is just something we do at the beginning of the week, but, but, out, but throughout the practical aspects of life, we tend to live like practical atheists. atheists. We, we, profess, we possess enough Christianity to make us moral and to make us comfortable in the Bible belt, right? Because that's where we are. Alabama may be the buckle of the belt. Missouri could be the buckle of the belt. And it's amazing. You know, I grew up in the South. And you go to visit on somebody. Nowadays, you don't even go visit people because they'll get mad at you for coming to your home. They think you're a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness. But you knock on a door, and, and if it's somebody that my church members have said, Preacher, it's happened here too. This person's lost. And, and I'm, a, I'm a wife or a husband, and the spouse is lost. Would you come over there and try to win... Win them to Christ. And I said, yes, ma'am. You tell me to go share Jesus with somebody, I'm going to go. Now, I realize that only God can save. And I pray the Spirit of God has gone before me and prepared that heart, which He has. But the issue is, 
you go over and you, you, you share the gospel with them and they haven't been in church for 40 years. And they say, well, I took care of that a long time ago, preacher. I did. I took care of that one a long time ago. And I, I know I'm good. I think that individual has forgotten that what the gospel demands or what God demands from us is everything. We've forgotten that if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. God promised you two things when he saved you. A cross to die on and eternal life. Search the scriptures. If, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. We're talking about the people of God who belong to him. And those people would say to me, I took care of that in pastor. Well, I want to tell you something. If you're not taking care of it today, you didn't take care of it then. I'm good, preacher. I've dealt with this gospel thing. I belong to the Lord. Are you taking care of that now? Well, I repented back then. Are you still repenting today? If, you didn't, if you're not repenting today of sin, you didn't repent back then. Is this making sense? It is. It, it makes clear sense. The Lord does not ask for us to invite Him into our lives. He asks you to be invited into His life. Folks, that's the gospel. And that's a whole lot different than what we have in our world today. The evangelists and the revivalists, when I grew up 30 and 40 years ago, they just say this, just come down the aisle. It won't take but five minutes. Pray this prayer. Ask Jesus into your heart and you're going to be fine. No, you're not going to be fine. That's not the gospel. The gospel is God will take up residence in your life, but he invites you into his life. The gospel is to know Jesus and to be a part of his life. And when you are, you will be his people. And He will be your God. And there will be a difference in your life. Amen, brother. The evidence that you believed unto salvation is that you're believing today as the days go by. You didn't just forget. The evidence that your life was changed then is that your life is changing now. Hear me, please. We're dealing with a gospel that demands everything. And we've forgotten that. And you may not think I'm serious, and you may not care, but I'm telling you what the Bible says. The Bible says you have a gospel that demands everything from you. Everything. But that's not what we see in our world today. It's not what I see in my own life. Confession is good for the soul. It's not what you see in your life. It doesn't mean we're not going to sin and fail. But what it does mean, uh, you know where your bread's buttered, to use a southern expression. Right? You know what you come back to. You come back to... Repentance and faith toward the Lord. Understand something. We act like in the church life sometimes we're trying to keep a dead corpse moving. And you know what Jesus said? I'd rather you be cold or hot. In other words, he said to us, you make me vomit. I will spew you out of my mouth, Revelation 3.16. How that we're neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm. We don't need to fall into presumptuous piety, folks. It would have been very easy for the Israelites to jump, go home rejoicing. We got the temple. We got the temple. Glory, hallelujah, we got the temple. What, what difference does it make if you have a physical structure, but you don't have the God who inhabits the temple? We don't need to fall into presumptuous piety and think that, hey, God is blessing FBCO in these days. Yes, but there's no guarantee that he's going to bless it tomorrow. You better not fall into presumptuous piety and think that we've arrived. We need to declare, to declare our utter dependence upon our God every single moment of every day. Who needs revival? 
That's right. Everybody in this building that professes to know Jesus, you need revival. Everybody. Number two, under what conditions does revival occur? Let me speed up a little bit. How can spiritual renewal become a living reality yes, to us? Here's a, here's a recipe. Revival will occur only when the Lord's people are broken. Y'all see it in the text? Now, humble themselves is not the most frequently used word in the Old or New Testament to, to speak of humility or humbleness. But it's the favorite word in the Hebrew here for the chronicler. He uses it for a reason. The best way to explain this is to say it's more uh, of, of a brokenness part of your life before the Lord. When we view Him in His holiness and turn to ours. Do you remember when uh, in the scripture, for an example, the men are cleaning up. Josiah is a little young boy. And the word has been gone and missing and burned up. Literally, in five, no, no copies of the scripture found. And the men are cleaning up and renovating the temple. And guess what they found? They find a Torah scroll. And they quickly take it to Huldah, the prophetess. And the Lord quickly spoke to her and said, If you don't adhere to everything that is written in this, all the covenant curses will fall on you. In other words, you found it, and it's my word, and you better do what it says. And the Bible says that in response, I mean, Josiah's a little boy king. He's 12 to 14 years of age. And the Bible says that his heart was tender. And he was humbled. He humbled himself. That's the same word here. He tears his clothes and he weeps before the Lord. Oh, that's the response we need, right? God says, revival will come if my people will be broken over their sin. If you'll be broken before God. On the other hand, we know about King Uzziah. And his heart was lifted up. And he thought he was strong within himself, right? That's what we learn in Isaiah 53, or Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died. If you read back on that, here's, here's a man, a king, that while he trusted the Lord, everything was good. But once he lifted up his heart, he wasn't broken before the Lord. Folks, I want to tell you something. Revival will begin at FBCO when we're broken over sin. When there's this brokenness in us, then revival will take place. You know, it's so easy to advertise our love to the Lord by empty words. Isn't it? Oh, it's so easy to give the verbiage, to give the words. We need to remember, if you're saved today, you're a sinner saved by grace. That's your standing. Brokenness before the Lord. Number two, revival will occur only when the Lord's people begin to pray. This kind of prayer is different. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, seek my face, pray, seek my face... This word is different. It's not like a chat with the Lord or a dialogue with God like some of the little books are written today. Let's dialogue with God. Let's have a little chat with the Lord. Let's converse with Him. The weight of the words are actually better seen for us in the book of Daniel. I can't read all of it for the sake of time, but listen, Daniel 9. In the first year of Darius, verse 3, start of Daniel's prayer. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer. Same terminology in Hebrew that you find in 2 Chronicles. And pleased for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled 
and turned aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants and the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. But to us, open shame as it, as it is this day. To the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to Israel, those who are near and those who are far away. In all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. The, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, we have sinned against you. Notice, open shame. And if, if you keep reading, there's several times he says, we have sinned. That's the point of this kind of prayer. It's to confess before our God that we have sinned. We are pleading to God for mercy. Understand something. If God's going to distinguish Himself according to the end of 2 Chronicles 7.14 and hear our prayer and heal our land, this is the second prerequisite. Brokenness. And the people of God have to begin to pray. And I'm not talking about just a little dialoguing with God. I'm talking about getting serious with who God is and what we've done against Him. Now you can do like the old Baptist preacher, for some reason wrote a book called The Art of Loving Yourself. I don't know where he fell and bumped his head. But that's kind of what we think about today. When we think about praying, we're thinking about, uh, how, can I, how can I love myself a little more and ask God for a few more things? He's a celestial bellhop, right? And he's going to meet the needs. Well, that's not the way the prayer, prayers work in the Scripture. I would say that book is called The Art of the Perversion of Loving Yourself. Right? You can look that up, The Art of Loving Yourself. I cringe at thinking about that, especially when he was a Baptist preacher. I wonder if he ever read his Bible. I wonder if you ever read his Bible. When I read the Bible, I discover that there must be something truly wonderful about my God that he would even love me at all. And when you read the Bible, you should think the same thing. Here's an awesome God of eternity that would love me. I stand amazed in the presence. You all know that hymn? Oh, i got one brother who does. Listen. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned and unclean. That's good preaching. Listen to this. He took my sins and my sorrows and made them his very own. He bore my burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. You ought to think about that. When you think about God. Not the art of loving yourself. But how awesome is the forgiveness of God. Listen to how this ends. When with the ransom in glory. His face I at last shall see. T'will be my joy through the ages. To sing of his love for me. You're not going to be singing about your love for God. You're going to be singing about the way he loved you. For God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son. Aren't you thankful that God would love sinners like us? So revival begins when the people of God are broken, when they pray. How about this one? When we seek His face. Now I'll ask you a question. Has His face been lost? Are y'all awake? Why are you seeking His face? Where is His face? Why, why would the writer say, when we seek His face? Well, quickly we like to seek His hand, don't we? We certainly like to. But in this reference, we seek his face. Where is God when I want him? Would be what the psalmist would say to us. He's silent. He's not there. But if you ask the prophets, their remark 
for God hiding his face is also always the result of sin in the lives of the people. And when God hides his face, the consequences are disastrous. In the church and across the world. You ever felt that way? That God is hiding his face from you, refuses to hear your prayers? You say, well, God wouldn't do that. All right, husbands. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. Verse 7 says, depending on the way you treat your wife, your prayers will be hindered. Hmm, thought you had a smooth sailing today, didn't you, men? And if God, if your prayers are hindered to the Lord by the way you treat your wife, I can tell you now your prayers are hindered in a whole lot of other ways too. Right? When God hides his face, we need to examine our hearts because the problem is not with our God. The problem is with us. God, when you hide your face, the problem is with this vessel. It's with us. Right? Not with the Lord. When our gratitude for the grace of God in our lives does not lead to wholehearted obedience to God, we should not be surprised when our prayers go unanswered. Right? We owe it all to the Lord. Number four, revival will occur only when God's people abandon their sinful ways. Oh, I said sin in 2019. Yes, I did, because the text says it. You know, we're enlightened today, and we're more tolerant. We're non-judgmental. We're okay with alternative lifestyles. Not in this church, Lord willing, right? We're not okay with that. We have dispensed with the words that we've used to use, like sin and evil, wickedness, because they imply some type of normative ethic. So we can't do that, right? Well, revival will not come until we look at our lives the way God looks at it, or at them. God says we're sinners. God says there's evil. God says the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? That's what the Bible says. So sadly, uh, I want to remind, well, not sadly, but I want to tell you, sin is still sin. No matter how you slice it or dice it or try to cover it up. Sin is still sin. And sadly, we all would like to have revival without pain. We want renewal without remorse. We want rejuvenating Without repentance. Our sin has, a, has an effect of reducing us to impotent measures when it comes to doing ministry in the church and across the world. Did y'all know that? It really, it really does. The sin disposes us and keeps us from being all that God would have us to be this side of heaven. How many men are kept from doing things for God because their minds are in, completely permeated with pornography? Let me tell you something, folks. Don't be stupid. It's like my dad used to say to me, son, you can't be dumb all your life. Right? That stuff affects you. It, it makes you impotent in the things of God because you're focused on things of this world. And you know I'm telling you the truth. You may not like it. And you may not like me too much right now. But the fact is, it's the truth. And you know it. You're not going to be prone to share Christ with your neighbor if your whole life is led by porno, pornographic things. If you're led away with leisure and, and different... I hope I'm preaching to the choir. I mean, I kind of feel like for some of you, I'm telling you things you already know, but somebody say, say it again, preacher, right? Just tell us anyway. We need to hear it. So the fact is, when we have been ignorant of the Scriptures, or we don't allow the Word of God to be the deciding factor in what we're going to believe, and we don't understand the beauty of righteousness, and the beauty of Christ, and holiness, and pleasing God, then we cease to function like salt and light. Is that better? Does that make sense? You want salt arrests corruption and light dispels darkness. How can we ever do those things 
If we don't know the Word of God, if we're not pleased and satisfied in God, we won't do it. Society is left without any kind of principle or purpose. And I can tell you, folks, in a lot of ways, the world is in the shape it's in because the 21st century church of Laodicea. And you know who we are. It's us. We need to be salt and light. Even as we are singing songs like we sang today. How, how did that song about revival and brokenness affect you? Well, I hope you were like me and you began to flag some impurities in your life before God. I mean, we've been invited before Him as an audience to worship the King of Kings. And when you sing songs that ought to flag something in your spirit about impurities and sin, you ought to begin to confess your sins before God. You ought to be sorry, sorry with godly sorrow for sin, right? You ought to be saying, oh God, I'm wretched, but I want to be used by you. That's what songs should do to your spirit. Not just standing up with your chin up and your chest out. Oh, I'm good. I'm singing. No, if the words don't move your affections to God to worship Him. And it doesn't move you to confess sin and want to repent to God. And want to say, God, I am so unworthy. But you are worthy. If we don't have those kind of feelings, then we're in trouble. Better yet, do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? That's what should happen. Your heart ought to be filled with that. And if you listen to all I've said today and your heart is like stone, then you better be afraid. Or better yet, you really need revival. Amen. And finally, just real quick, what can we expect? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear. In other words, God will hear. Okay, that's the first thing. He's going to hear us. I will heal their land. You know, these are distinguishing marks. In other words, don't you want the God of eternity to distinguish Himself in our world? Don't you want Him to distinguish Himself in your life personally? Then you do those four things with a heart toward God. And God says, I will show up. I will. I promise. I will show up and do these things. Psalm 85 that Brother David put up at the end, it says, And I will heal their land. Man, we could stand some of that, couldn't we? In other words, all these principles, uh, forgiving, lifting, counseling, judgment, that's awesome. But what about the most important thing? I will forgive their sins. In spite of all that Joel Osteen says, the heretic, in spite of all he tells you about the good life and about all these things, the greatest thing that could ever happen for a child of God is to be forgiven of your sins. Right? Notice, there's not one thing about prosperity here. There's not anything about miracles. I mean, the crown jewel of the gospel is to be forgiven of our sin. It's to be right with God. And that's exactly what he says. Notice revival doesn't appear one time in this text. However, this is the primary passage that is used in the entire Bible to preach on revival. But it's not used. Why is that? Because revival is a byproduct of an already prescribed agenda. The agenda is obey God. It's that simple. If we'll obey our God, then God will distinguish Himself. God will show up. Now, I may be the only one who believes that God can work in this church and in this city, in this state, and around the world. I hope I'm not the only one. According to Psalm 85, there are three things in there. We've got to acknowledge the need that we're sinners and we need our God to touch us. Acknowledge the need, believe in the possibility. And according to Psalm 85, it's repent of all known sin. 
Folks, if we do that, we'll experience revival. By the way, I'm going to remind you, that's the same way you're saved. Those three things. You've got to acknowledge the need that you're a sinner and that you've got to have a Savior. You've got to repent and turn to God. You've got to move from a place of unbelief to a place of belief and put your faith in Jesus only. Right? You do that. You believe in the possibility that God can save your soul. And you believe totally in Him to do it and no one else. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man will ever come to the Father except through me. And you believe in Him. Amen? Y'all want revival? Father, help us. God, that's what we cry. Lord, in this text, you're telling your people to cry out for deliverance. And I know that I, I probably struck a few chords that are not popular because we have our American way of thinking about Christianity. But God, I'm asking you to help us be biblical in the way we see Christianity. Jesus reminded us of this. Any man would come after me. Let him take up his cross and follow me. You said numerous times, Lord Jesus, that you cannot be my disciple if you don't do certain things. If you don't let go of the plow. If we don't disavow our allegiance to self and put our full allegiance to you, we, we cannot be your disciple. Lord, we know what your word says. God, I pray that you would send revival in my own life. I need it. God, spiritual reformation. Lord, help us get down to the brass tacks. We need to know you more. Paul said this, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. Lord, Paul was an awesome Christian, but he surely wasn't perfect. And he had not arrived. He was not in a position where he was going to be spiritually stagnant. He knew full well that he needed some divine dissatisfaction with where he is before you. And so do we. God, help us to be dissatisfied in our present standing state before you. We need you to change us. Conform us into the image of your son. God, would you send revival to First Baptist Church Ozark? Lord, in the same vein that we saw a 23-year-old preach a sermon one day and, and it sprung forth revival in nations. God, you can do it again. And Lord, we know what the circumstances that will bring it. My people who are called by my name will humble themselves. Brokenness. Pray. Seek your face. Turn from their wicked ways. Call sin what it is and confess it. Then I will hear from heaven and heal their land and forgive their sins. God, we need it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.